Defiant of Obstacles, Online Support Present Training. www.defiantobstaclesen.com Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Today is Sunday, November 9th, 2014, and the title of the talk for today is called immersed in and obstructed by the way. So the last two months uh, in the Sunday talks here, we've been presenting Dogen's guidelines for studying the way. They were written in the year 1234 by Dogen, the founder of the Japanese Soto Zen school. And to recap the last eight guidelines, we're on number nine today, so the last eight Number one, you should arouse the thought of enlightenment. Number two, once you see or hear the true teaching, you should practice it without fail. Number three, in the Buddha way, you should always enter enlightenment through practice. Number four, you should not practice Buddha's teaching with the idea of gain. Number five, you should seek a true teacher to practice Zen and study the way. Number six, what you should know for practicing Zen. Number seven, the need for Zen training in Buddhist practice and enlightenment. And eight, the conduct of Zen practitioners. So nine, the guideline for today is you should practice throughout the way, or another translation puts it as the need to practice in accordance with the way. So a couple of things that I've called out from one of the translations of this, um, it's the Tanahashi translation. Courageous people who study the way should first know what is correct and what is incorrect in practice throughout the way. To practice throughout the way is to actualize the limitless realm of the Buddha way and to illuminate all aspects of the Buddha way. The Buddha way is under everyone's heel. Immersed in the way, clearly understand right on the spot. Immersed in enlightenment, you yourself are complete. It is like someone who runs away from her father, leaving a treasure behind and wandering about. Though she is the only child of a wealthy family, she endlessly wanders as a menial in foreign lands. Indeed, it is just like this. Those who study the way seek to be immersed in the way. For those who are immersed in the way, all traces of enlightenment perish. Those who practice the Buddha way should first of all trust in the Buddha way. Those who trust in the Buddha way should trust that they are in essence within the Buddha way, where there is no delusion, no false thinking, no confusion, no increase or decrease, and no mistake. To arouse such trust and illuminate the way in this manner and to practice accordingly are fundamental in studying the way.
We do this by sitting, which severs the root of thinking and blocks access to the road of intellectual understanding. This is an excellent means to arouse true beginner's mind. Then we let body and mind drop away and let go of delusion and enlightenment. So I want to go back to the lines where the word immersed was being used. Immersed in the way, clearly understand right on the spot. Immersed in enlightenment, you yourself are complete. And those who study the way seek to be immersed in the way. For those who are immersed in the way, all traces of enlightenment perish. So what imagery comes up for you when you think about immersed? It's one of the things that I like about comparing some of these translations of these uh, texts is uh, the words, different trans translators use different words. And often when you start playing with different words, there's a, there's a subtle shift or sometimes one word just really lines up in your mind where another word just you know kind of went over, over the head. So I looked up the word immersed and it means to be submerged or plunged. And I thought about that. That's the imagery that was coming up for me when I think about being immersed is like uh, being in, in a river or immersed in the ocean. There was this water imagery. And immersed also means to be occupied by or with, absorbed or engrossed. It also means to be involved or to involve oneself deeply in a particular activity, to lose oneself in a particular activity. So then I started playing with some of those words, putting them into these two lines. So instead of immersed in the way, absorbed in the way, clearly understand right on the spot. Instead of immersed in enlightenment, losing the self in enlightenment, you yourself are complete. For those who are occupied by the way, all traces of enlightenment perish. Now another translator, Shohak Okamura, he, instead of using the word immersed, translated those lines as obstructed by. Being obstructed by the way, you clarify the way right here. Being obstructed by enlightenment, you completely become yourself. Students of the way should desire to be obstructed by the way. To be obstructed by the way means to forget any trace of enlightenment. So what comes up when you hear the word obstruct? I think of a wall, <laughs> like the brick wall over here. And when I looked up that word, it means to stop, to halt, 
or to block. And that makes me think of things that get in the way or hinder movement or progress. Another meaning of obstruct, however, which I find very interesting, is to bring to a standstill. So then I inserted that into those two lines, taking out obstruct. So rather than being obstructed by the way, brought to a standstill, you clarify the way right here. Rather than being obstructed by enlightenment, brought to a standstill, you completely become yourself. To be brought to a standstill by the way means to forget any trace of enlightenment. And the thing I think that's nice about that is that that's what it's like when we sit down bringing ourselves to a standstill rather than the mind going out, our energy going out like it does when we're doing our day-to-day -day lives. When we come into the zendo and sit down on the cushion, bringing that discursive mind to a standstill. Now I want to go back to this thing about obstructions from the perspective of things that get in the way, which I think is slightly different than what Dogen is saying here in these lines, according to Shohak's translation. I don't think Dogen is using obstruct in this way, things that get in the way. But I think of that in terms of what hinders us from being in the moment. The things that obstruct us keep us from seeing our true nature and living in accord with reality. And this has been on my mind for several reasons this past week or so. One is that we're currently involved in a practice period on the Vine of Obstacles Dosho's online teaching platform. And one of the essential elements of the practice period is for each participant to choose a theme to work on over the course of the 12 weeks. And thanks to the words of a Vine student, we've begun calling this essential element the one inescapable thing. So the idea is to frame this one inescapable thing. Each person chooses a theme. And uh, we frame it as a question, using it to focus, to guide us through the practice period, to guide our inquiry and our discovery process. And we return to it repeatedly throughout the week. And the idea is to work the edge of our intention for practice. So to give you an example, I've chosen to work with perfectionism as my one escapable thing for the practice period. And I've framed that 
as, in the form of a question, as how does practicing perfectionism hinder my spiritual practice? When does perfectionism get in the way of experiencing what is present in each moment? And what would happen if I let go of attachment to perfection? Other themes that people have chosen for this practice period include trust, right speech, aspiration, discipline, taking refuge in the sangha, anger, and flowing with life just as it is. So these edges in practice, the edges of our intention, these inescapable things, on one level, they're all fine. It's part of everyday human life. But what makes them inescapable is that they can often be obstacles because they obscure or block the ability to be in the present moment. But they're also Dharma gates. And by taking them up as edges to work in practice, we have the opportunity to push through them, allowing us to realize the truth and experience freedom from our conditioning. Katagiri Roshi had a line that fits nicely here. He says, the gap between subject and object is the cold wind of suffering. And the task of Zen is to bridge the gap between subject and object. So in terms of choosing a theme or an inescapable thing like perfectionism, Some might look at that and say, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with perfectionism? Don't we all have aspirations to be perfect? (laughs) But the thing that is a block or an obstacle in that is that when I am caught up in practicing perfectionism, I often end up creating a lot of suffering for myself and for others because there's this separation I'm caught up in judging, wanting things to be other than the way they are. I'm judging myself, I'm judging my practice, I'm judging other people, my expectations aren't met, I'm disappointed. Big gap. The other reason why this thing about obstructions um, and inescapable things uh, has been on my mind is that a week or so ago, there was a participant, there is a participant in the practice period who posted a thread on the vine that was entitled a vivid practice that is not aimed at the future. And in it, he noted that it's been an interesting experience for him to be engaging with a cyber sangha and that the style of practice is quite different from what he's used to. And 
what he was calling out in terms of the difference is that there has been in this practice period a lot more emphasis on working with psychological material. Which he thinks has been interesting to be a part of that. Uh, but there's also been something about it that uh, bothered him. And he says that it sometimes has the feel of gaining, getting somewhere, self-improvement. And he himself is a therapist. So he acknowledges that self-work can be valid, but wonders if people are using Buddhism as a substitute for therapy. And wonders then if that's the case, if something gets obscured when Zen practice and therapy get blurred together. So several people, including Zenki, have responded to this thread online. Dosho has also responded to it. And I haven't responded. I've been rolling it around and on one hand, I agree with some of the, appoint, the, the points that he's made. There's been a, a, lot of, a lot of posts about it, I think 30 or so back and forth. So it's been a very rich topic. But there's also been something that's been bothering me about it. <laughs> and I've been trying to get clear about what that is. And I think on one hand, it's valid to acknowledge that psychotherapy and Zen practice are different paths. On the other hand, uh, the Dharma is big enough, vast enough, to encompass everything. So one of the questions that has been coming up for me is, does that distinction matter so much? And actually, when I've been reflecting on this, um, I remember when I was new, very new to Zen practice, um, I think I actually attempted to go to therapy once before I started Zen practice. I mean, once in that I, you know, found a therapist and I think I went for a couple of sessions, but I didn't go for that long and I don't, I don't remember why now. Um, I don't know if it just wasn't a good fit between me and the therapist or if I just wasn't ready. I don't know. But, uh, I remember going to one of my first practice meetings with a teacher, a Zen teacher, and she had an office that was off-site away from the, the Zen center. And practice meetings are, are different usually from Dokusan in that they're longer, usually about you know, 30 minutes, um, rather than just being brief face-to-face um, -face meetings uh, during morning or evening zazen where you have a chance to go and present something that's coming up in your practice. So I had made this appointment with her to have a practice meeting. And I don't really remember now what I, what I talked about. Um, I remember being very nervous about it because I wasn't sure what I was supposed to talk about in a practice meeting with a Zen teacher. But um, based on what I remember going on at that period of time in my life, um, I'm sure that I brought up something about my family. You know, I was having a lot of tension in relationships with my family members. 
family dynamics. And uh, so I'm sure that I brought up something about that. And uh, after I had talked for a bit, she said to me, have you ever thought about going to therapy? (laughs) (laughs) And I was a little taken aback because I thought, "Uh oh, I've talked about the wrong things. You know, (laughs) was I not supposed to say things about my family? Uh, but actually, what what I ended up saying to her was, well, I kind of see this practice as my therapy. You know, because there were some similarities. And, you know, doing the practice, starting to sit a lot and going to retreats, I mean, a lot of stuff starts to come up, so... So it was funny, you know, when I saw this question about are people using using Buddhism as therapy? I thought, well, you know, sometimes sometimes we don't know the difference in the beginning. And actually after that, um, I, I think it was quite a while after that, maybe after I'd been practicing for a couple of years, um, and there were quite a few people in the Zen Center that were going to therapy. So... Um, I did end up eventually going to a therapist and then, you know, it became kind of this thing of where uh, a lot of us were seeing um, the same therapist in the Zen Center and then it almost started to be like kind of a sibling rivalry thing like, oh, well, she likes you better than me. You got to go in first and talk about what happened. I know she took your side. (laughs) So again, interesting in terms of family dynamics. But the other interesting thing about this question is that as I've been rolling this around this past week about, you know, Zen and psychotherapy, you know, are they complementary practices? Is it okay to do both? You know, um, I came across this article online that uh, actually gave me more fodder to contemplate. Um, the blog, it was a blog post entitled, Everyone Comes to Meditation Practice for the Wrong Reason. A conversation with psychoanalyst Barry Magid. And the post, the blog post, was a transcript of an interview done with Barry by Matt Bieber, a freelance writer who writes about politics, mental illness, and Buddhism. And Barry, Barry is a psychoanalyst and a Zen teacher. He founded the uh, Ordinary Mind Zendo in New York, and that's where he also practices as a psychoanalyst. So in the interview, Matt uh, brings up Barry's book, Ending the Pursuit of Happiness, where Barry writes that Buddhism is not a quick fix for anything and that many of us practitioners engage in secret practices and curative fantasies when we come to meditation practice. And I, I thought about that, you know, what, what did I come to practice for in the beginning? Was it just for the sake of meditating? No, you know, I wanted to be happy. I wanted to know if there was something more I remember one of the 
the way I refer to it now is a found koan, which I think we often have these questions that bring us to practice or, or kind of uh, generate our way-seeking mind. I had this question after I'd been practicing for a while of how can I fully experience my life and yet not be tossed away by it? So, you know, maybe that was a secret practice, wanting to find some kind of technique or some kind of method or path that would help me feel more grounded. Or actually, you know, if I'm, if I'm honest and I think back about that time, back to that time, probably, you know, getting rid of problems. Like, I want to find something that helps me not have any problems. Or if I do this long enough, you know, that's the curative fantasy. If I do this long enough, I will get rid of my problems. So in the article, Barry goes on to reference Dogen, who said that from the first time we sit, we are fully realizing our true nature. And that rather than a technique, a zazen is a manifestation of who we are. He says that the idea is that when we sit down, we are really practicing simply leaving ourselves alone through a willingness to embody this moment's experience in its own right so that from the very beginning, we're off the grid of progress or any kind of means to an end thinking. And when I read this article, I really liked that line, simply leaving ourselves alone when we sit down. It reminds me of the ninth guideline, that line about being obstructed by the way, where I inserted brought to a standstill by the way. You clarify the way right here. You completely become yourself. If we just leave ourselves alone, we completely become ourselves. Isn't that ironic? <laughs> when we spend so much time running around trying to find out, figure out how to fix ourselves. So on one hand, like Dogen is saying, we are whole and complete lacking nothing from the very beginning. And yet, like Suzuki Roshi said, we could all use a little improvement. And even though Barry talks about sitting down and leaving ourselves alone, you know, that's one of the primary themes in his work is exploring the interactivity and the complementarity of psychology, psychotherapy, and Zen. He says that in his experience, everybody, everybody comes to practice with a certain kind of self-centered curative fantasy. But the practice, the practice itself is a double-edged sword because for a while we think that it might work. It might cure us of whatever ails us. 
and we do we do have some quieting down some calmness that develops some equanimity some blissful states but the real practice he says the real practice is subversive and deconstructive of all the reasons that initially brought us to it He goes on to talk about how in the second and third decade of practice, people really have to pass through the question, what is this? Why am I still doing this? And we get to this place where a lot of our fantasies or idealism about practice have been worn away. And, you know, maybe on a positive note, I mean, some of that wearing away is because we have made some changes in our lives. We have made some progress. We haven't, we, you know, we've let go maybe of some of our conditioning. We feel a little bit more freedom, a little bit more ease. But I think that's why psychology, doing psychological work and spiritual work, in my own experience, I have found that the two together have been very powerful. And I think more so in a way than either one could have been on its own. And maybe that's not the case for everyone. Everybody has a different process, a different path. I found this really nice line by another psychologist, uh, David Rico. He's written a number of books um, about psychological and spiritual work. He's a uh, teacher at Spirit Rock Meditation Center in California and also has a private practice. And he says that by psychological work, we are changed. In spiritual work, we are revealed. And it's in that revealing like Dogen is saying, Zazen is a manifestation of who we are. When we are revealed, it is then that we can manifest our inner wholeness in conscious daily life. So the other thing that comes up um, in terms of the question that was posed by the participant on the vine you know, whether people are using Buddhism as a substitute for therapy. I think one of the more critical questions is whether people are using Buddhism to bypass psychological work. That's called spiritual bypassing. And Barry's teacher, uh, Charlotte Joko Beck, she was a Dharma era of Maizumi Roshi, uh, one of the first Western women teachers. She established the Zen Center of San Diego and has written a couple of books, Everyday Zen and Nothing Special. And this was a concern for her. And I think that trickled down to Barry and her other um, Dharma heirs, many of them who are therapists, psychotherapists, psychoanalysts. And for her, after witnessing a number of scandals erupting at Zen centers across the country, including with her own teacher, Maizumi Roshi, 
she became known for challenging the traditional models of teaching and training because she felt that those traditional models were failing to address the psychological realm, the character flaws of teachers, of students, in favor of realization and enlightenment experiences. So in terms of spiritual bypassing, uh, Robert Augustus Masters refers to this as avoidance in holy drag. He says that the term spiritual bypassing was first coined by psychologist John Wellwood in 1984, and it's the use of spiritual practices and beliefs to avoid dealing with our painful feelings, unresolved wounds, and developmental needs. He writes that it's a pervasive yet shadowy aspect of spiritual practice because it's more often framed as transcendent and spiritually advanced practice. And in this thing that I was reading by him online, he goes on to talk about some of the canned wisdom that comes out of this kind of spiritual bypassing. These phrases, which are bandied about, I'm sure you've heard, don't take it personally. You know, just don't take anything personally. And whatever bothers you about someone else is really only about you. Or it's all just an illusion. You know, these are the kinds of things that we can tell ourselves after we've been hanging around Zen centers for a while and Zen people. You know, this idea that uh, we are supposed to be perfect after we've been practicing for a while, or that the teachers that we come to practice with after all of their years of training and study should be perfect. It's not okay to get angry. It's not okay to have bad thoughts about someone. You know, these are the kinds of things that we beat up ourselves with. I remember in the beginning as well, uh, going to a Dharma talk and hearing one of my first teachers talk about um, getting a divorce, about the fact that he was remarried. And I was, it took me months to get over that. <laughs> I came from a, a family where my parents were divorced and my idealism was just right out there <laughs> with that that I had this idea that a spiritual person, a teacher, a guru, you know, should be able to keep it together. And how could this person help me if they couldn't even save their own marriage? So that was how idealistic I was. Masters has a nice quote here. He says, most of the time when we're immersed in spiritual bypassing, we like the light, but not the heat. Doing whatever we can to distance ourselves from the flames. I like that. You know, we're often drawn to enlightenment. And let's just forget that other stuff back here. <laughs>